Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. And you can find out more by visiting the website johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Naples Illustrated, bringing you infinite luxury lifestyles. The website, naplesillustrated.com. We have terrific guests for today's show, including Kathleen Pasadomo, our state senator, will be joining us. We'll find out what's new with Boo up in Madison, Wisconsin. Boo Mortensen will be joining us. Seton Motley, the founder and president of Less Government. And Phil Kirpin, he's the uh, president of the American Commitment and the Committee to Unleash Prosperity. We'll be talking more about the COVID-19. Talk about this in the first segment here as well. It is June the 23rd, and on this day in 1992, Mafia boss John Gotti, who is nicknamed the Teflon Don after escaping unscathed, from several trials during the 1980s, was sentenced to life in prison after being found guilty on 14 counts of conspiracy to commit murder and racketeering. Moments after a sentence was read to a federal courthouse in Brooklyn, hundreds of Gotti supporters stormed the building and overturned and smashed cars before being forced back by police reinforcements. Gotti was born and educated on the mean streets of New York City, became head of the powerful Gambino uh, family after boss Paul Castellano was murdered outside a steakhouse in Manhattan in December 1985. The gang's assassination, the first in three decades in New York, was organized by Gotti and his colleague Sammy the Bull Gravano. The Gambino family was known for its illegal narcotics operations, gambling activities, and car theft. During the next five years, Gotti rapidly expanded his criminal empire and his family grew into the nation's most powerful mafia family. Despite wide publicity of his criminal activities, Gotti managed to avoid conviction several times, usually through witness intimidation. In 1990, however, he was indicted for conspiracy to commit murder and the death of Paul Castellano, and Gravano agreed to testify against him in the federal district court in exchange for a reduced prison sentence. On April 2, 1992, Gotti was found guilty on all counts and on June 23rd was sentenced to multiple life terms without the possibility of parole. While still imprisoned, he died of throat cancer on June the 10th, 2002. I don't know if it was his autobiography. I read a, a, a story. I read his a book about Gotti. Interesting guy. Nevertheless, uh, imprisoned on this day in 1992. Well, 47 new cases of COVID-19 in Cuyahoga County on Monday. A total number of confirmed COVID-19 cases in Collier's increased to 3,206. Collier's recorded a total of 1,667 cases so far in June with an overall positivity rate of 13.6%. In May, the uh, number of cases was 943 and uh, the infection rate was 8.37%. 291 people in Collier County have been hospitalized for COVID-19. And uh, Kyrie has 19.7% of its total hospital beds available and 39.5% of its adult ICU beds available. And we have 64 deaths so far. So what does all this mean? Well, it could be alarming. In fact, if you read the news uh, where you hear things of second wave and considering new uh, things to requirements for the public in order to maintain safety and our health, Well, Daniel Horowitz is a senior editor of the Conservative Review, writes, when the media frantically warns of record spikes of coronaviruses in Florida and several other southern states and predict these states will become the next epicenter for the virus, people automatically conjure up images of Italy and New York City. Naturally, there is a desired result of the media-driven panic. In fact, the media has been predicting Florida would become the next New York since April. However, once you study the data on who the states are testing and why testing is going on, uh, deaths are still declining every day. It's becoming clear that the reality is exactly the opposite of the panic the media is pushing. More broadly, what we are seeing in the states, mainly in the South, 
that they are now being dubbed as hotspots is true flat curve. It's a flattening curve. The flatten to flatten the curve means to drag cases for a longer period, but avoid a steep surge of serious hospitalizations and fatalities. Thus, the current increase in cases, the overwhelming majority of them minor, is a feature of a better outcome. Not a bug, he says Horowitz. Florida's hospitalizations was never a problem during the peak weeks like they were in New York and not a problem. The dramatic dichotomy between the multitude of new cases and the lower number of deaths proves that panic prediction is wrong. In that sense, the discovery of more cases actually a good thing, he writes. And then today, the editorial board of the Wall Street Journal wrote this, which is so interesting. The Labor Department on Friday reported jobless rates in May for 50 states, and the news is greater than usual in its variation. Some state economies are recovering much faster than others, and the worst performing tend to be those that have imposed the most severe lockdowns. The national jobless rate was 13.3% in May, but in 10 states still have unemployment rates as above 15%. From the highest down there, Nevada, uh, Hawaii, Michigan, California, Rhode Island, and Massachusetts, Delaware, Illinois, and New Jersey, and Washington State all above 15%. The Nevada and Hawaii economies rely heavily on tourism. That's been walloped by the pandemic. Of course, you can make a case for that. But all the these 10 states that have had some of the strictest lockdowns, the Michigan rate is especially striking compared to the lower rates in Wisconsin, which is 12%, and Indiana, 12.3%, down from 17.5% in a month. New York, the state hit hardest by the virus, has a jobless rate of 14.5%. In May, somewhat down somewhat from 15% a month earlier. Nine of the 10 states with the highest jobless rates are run by Democrats who have tended to demand that the economy should stay locked down and in some cases are still resisting opening. One exception is Colorado, where Democrat Governor Jared Polis was one of the first to reopen. His decision to pay is paying off as Colorado's jobless rate in May fell to 10.2% from 12.2% in April. Other states well below the national rate include Georgia, Arkansas, uh, Arizona, Utah, and Nebraska, the lowest rate in the country at 5.2%. These tend to be the states that resisted total lockdowns or reopened sooner. Some of this variation may be related to statistical noise from rapid labor ships uh, that, have, that are hard to track. Over time, the rates should tend to converge closer to the national average. But so far, these numbers suggest a tale of two U.S. economies. States that are reopening faster are recovering faster and easing more economic suffering. The states that put a premium on trying to reduce the spread beyond the original purpose of protecting hospitals and the healthcare system are lagging. It isn't clear that those shutdowns reduce the rate of infection and fatalities from the coronavirus compared to other states, even as they continue to do more economic harm. All of this offers lessons for the months ahead candidates debate which policies will best spur the most rapid recovery the most important decision is letting people return to business and life in commerce certainly the case so we're going to read more and more uh, uh, mainstream media especially pointing out that hey we've got a second wave coming we need to have more requirements like uh, everybody wearing a mask when they're in public and so forth Nonsense, in my opinion. Again, each of us should be the judge and jury of our own health, and we should take care of ourselves according to our own uh, decisions about our immune system, certainly with the counsel of our doctors and our loved ones, but uh, we should be making the decisions, not the state and not local municipalities, in my opinion. Well, a whopping 7.7 million viewers tuned into Fox News from 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. during Trump's remarks made, and that's, of course, at the rally, making it the most watched Saturday network in history during that time period, according to Nielsen uh, data. President Trump rally in uh, Tulsa attracted over 4 million unique viewers across all the campaign digital media channels. The live-streamed pre-rally shows drew an audience of more than 2.5 million. Uh, it's just an amazing you know, the, the mainstream media is trying to talk down the fact that the attendance was not great, somewhere between six and 12,000. But you just take a look at the palpable energy behind this movement, about behind this president, and you see, you know, what an amazing thing he's accomplished. And, you know, again, people self-selected. They weren't forced to go to that rally. They decided to go to the rally in spite of 
in spite of uh, the violence that was threatened, in spite of uh, the big talk about all the infections that will be incurred, be interesting to see in the next couple of weeks how many infections really do occur as a result of the rally. Well, President Trump took to Twitter late Monday to announce that numerous people were arrested in Washington, D.C. as protesters attempted to tear down the statue of Andrew Jackson at Lafayette Park and once again targeted the nearby St. John's Episcopal Church. Uh, here's his uh, tweet. Numerous people arrested in D.C. for disgraceful vandalism in Lafayette Park of the magnificent statue of Andrew Jackson, in addition to the exterior defacing of St. John's Church across the street. Trump tweeted, 10 years in prison under the Veterans Memorial Preservation Act. Beware, tweeted Trump. Social media posts from journalists in the area report that protesters are setting up camp near Lafayette Park in similar fashion to Seattle's CHOP. Uh, Fox DC uh, 5 reported that protesters sprayed and painted BHAZ on the columns of St. John's Church, which what apparently is a reference to the Black Autonomous Zone that's going to be set up there. Well, I watch videos of all, th all the things that were happening, and <laughs> the pepper spray was going like crazy. Those people who thought they could uh, intimidate the police, this is really the park police, actually, not the Washington, D.C. police, uh, had another thing coming because uh, I don't think they're setting up any kind of camp in Washington, D.C. Uh, last night, and the statue still remains. And then Sa Seattle Mayor Jenny Durkin of, uh, indicates that in uh, Seattle that the autonomous zone will be shut down following the shootings that occurred on Saturday and Sunday at Father's Day weekend. She reached, reacted to the shootings by noting that Chaz has grown less safe instead of safer. What was that her expectation? It was going to get safer? It's unbelievable. Nevertheless, uh, shut down. She's going to shut it down. We'll see how that goes. Kind of interesting. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. Visit johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also, by Naples Illustrated, bringing you infinite luxury lifestyles. The website is naplesillustrated.com. Coming up, we're going to visit with our state senator, Kathleen Pasadomo, that and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of the Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m., seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Shore Playhouse is passionately committed to enriching our cultural landscape by producing professional theater to the highest artistic standards with six full productions this season. But did you know that Gulf Shore Playhouse brings unique theater education programs and opportunities for children, teens, and adults alike? Education is a vital component of Gulf Shore Playhouse's mission, providing programs aimed at enriching the lives of our children, teens, and students of all ages. Each offering provides real-life skills and learning experiences that are invigorating, nurturing, and readily accessible to every member of our community, thanks to the scholarships and reduced-price programming for our region's most deserving students. From in-school residencies and pre-professional theater training to community partnerships, audience engagement, and student matinees. The goal is to inspire creativity, encourage self-expression, and support the blossoming of self-confidence, collaboration, and a deep appreciation for the arts. With each passing year, Gulf Shore Playhouse continues to touch the lives of tens of thousands of students throughout Southwest Florida. Isn't it time that a young person in your life finds out more? For more information about student camps and the Teen Conservatory, visit the website golfshoreplayhouse.org.
Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. And now not only offering great summer programs for kids, but also a great season lined up. You can get tickets now at a nice discount by visiting gulfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to be visiting uh, with uh, Phil Kirpin, the president of American Commitment. Right now we have with us our state senator, Kathleen Pasadomo. Kathleen, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning. Good morning, Kathleen. So I want to get an update from you on a number of things, but first let's start off with unemployment because that was a little bit of a fiasco, uh, overwhelming uh, the unemployment system uh, in in the state. Any update? Well, we have uh, now basically caught up on the, uh, uh, I guess I'd describe it as the normal applications, uh, the ones that, you know, correctly filled out, et cetera. And now they're uh, trying to sort their way through the ones that have special circumstances. And, and those are ones that uh, had, you know, different employment dates, different employee, employers, mm. uh, ones that may have filed two or three applications, the ones that, um, and I think we talked about that, didn't really know who they were for. For example, they'd write down McDonald's, but they really didn't work for McDonald's because nobody works for McDonald's. They work for the franchisee, right? Um, those kind of things. So yep. they're they're they have to do that by hand. And I think uh, things are starting to settle down. And also, of course, as people are getting back to work, they're getting paid. They're getting paid again. And so we just need to get caught up on the the back pay that they're owed under unemployment. That certainly makes sense. Well, it sounds like a good story then. So, um, if it's is it my imagination, I'm seeing a lot of uh, fear mongering going on with regard to COVID nineteen, uh, spike in infections and and, and uh, positive results and tests and so forth. Uh, what are your thoughts on all that? Well, I uh, the way that, that is absolutely true um, about. Uh, Three weeks ago uh, to a month ago, uh, we were trending downwards. The number per days were uh, going from a high of a thousand down to seven hundred, down to you know it kept on going down. And you know I check them every day. These are new cases in the state, and we were down to like three hundred, which mm-hmm. was very good. And the percentage of you know that means the percentage positive uh, of the tests that were being given was very low, you know, 3 and 4%. Uh, then what happened was those were for the tests that, you know, people needed prescriptions for and, and the like. So we, didn't, we weren't doing as much testing back then as we are now. Mm-hmm. So now everybody can get a test, so people are getting a test, which, of course, is uh, reflecting a lot of people that are positive without symptoms. Mm-hmm. And what does that mean? That means there are people that are potentially infectious that we may not have known about, particularly some of the younger people who are being tested. And uh, what the governor has said, and, and rightly so, is a lot of these um, positives, they are um, they're not showing any symptoms. And so, therefore, they're fine, and they're not going to get very sick. Unfortunately, it depends on who they come in contact with. And that's the devil in the details kind of thing. So mm-hmm. if you have a lot of young people or people out there in, who are working who are tested, they may know, not know they have it unless they test. And they can give it to someone who's older who is more um, susceptible or somebody with pre-existing conditions as we move about in society. We can't shut down again. Right. I, that would be a disaster. So what do you do? You want to protect yourself, and you want to protect your families. You know, so, you know, you know but uh, Kathleen, old folks can think, too, and they can make decisions to take care of themselves. And if somebody has a, a test positive, they can say, actually say to their family, I tested positive. You need to make sure you distance yourself from me, at least for right. the, the next 14 days. Exactly. And older folks can, can self-quarantine and say, you know what, I'm susceptible. I have a compromised immune system. I need to play it safe. So, I mean, I think taking draconian measures and doing this... Uh, um, well, they're not, they're not going to shut down again. Yeah. And I don't think there's going to be a mandatory mask. But, but I think, think practically, though. Mm-hmm. I'm 67 years old, and I'm very healthy, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, my husband is 68, and he has an immune deficiency. Now, I'm, tr- I'm all over the place because I'm meeting with people. I'm, I'm doing my job. Mm-hmm. 
do I want to sleep in the closet for the rest of the summer? <laughs> you know, <clears throat> do I want to social distance from my family? No. Mm-hmm. I want to protect them. But I also want to enjoy their company. Yeah. So what am I doing? Um, when we go out, I'll wear a mask. There's nothing wrong with that. No. I've got some really cool ones that have all kinds of cool stuff on them. So if people were thinking about that, then they would, you know, kind of think it through and it's no harm, no foul. You know what, though, Kathleen, that's a perfect description of taking your personal circumstances and making good decisions based on those circumstances, you know. Right, right. Which I think is uh, absolutely the, the way to go about this. So, again, guidelines I think are great, but making strict rules, I think it's, people have had enough of that, quite frankly. I agree. I, agree. I, I wish, though, that, you know, and, and you hear about you know there's, there's a, a when large crowds get together, mm-hmm. uh, they they get really enthusiastic and, and don't think about it. So when you when you, you know, when you think what about all those people that may have it who haven't tested for it, so they don't know. Right. Uh, there are a lot more people, obviously, that have it that are asymptomatic, so they're going to be fine. They just don't know. And unless they have a test, so if if they're wandering around, who, uh, getting close to others, the the bottom line is, are they going to infect someone else? Else, and it's purely unintentional. But so I think you know everybody's got to think it through, right. think about their lifestyle, think about where they're going, what they're doing, and and you know we made the decision. I've got old, as I said, I got all these cool masks and. When I go to Publix, I wear it. Yeah, kind of feel a little funny because you know why? The worst part is, you know, I smile at everybody. Yeah, they can't see your yeah. smile. <laughs> no, a- I know. It's like I'm smiling at people or whatever, and they don't know it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's that's a, such an interesting response. But you know, well, and you point out another thing too, which is not only do you have to take care of yourself, you got to be a good neighbor, make sure that you're living right. responsible and respecting other people's right. health as well. So, but I still think in the framework of your own personal life, you can make your decisions for yourself. Sure. And and uh, you know, it, there's kind of a double standard here because the president's holding a rally. Uh, in uh, Oklahoma and Tulsa, and uh, the standard is, uh, oh my gosh, we're going to infect everybody, and yet we have Black Lives Matter in D- Washington D.C. <laughs> carrying on, and the press doesn't seem to care about that. Well, that I, I do. Um, I think that's hypercritical of them, and and I agree with you. Um, but but you know, as my mother would say, two wrongs don't make a right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Your mother so was a I, wise woman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and well, that was always, because when we were kids, we were always, like, blaming each other for stuff. You know, he did it, she did it, whatever, two wrongs don't make a right. That yeah. was the end of it. Um, and I, I wish the president would encourage people to wear masks in public, um, because then they could, that would be a good uh, personal responsibility. And, you know, people want to take direction. Yeah. And it's too politicized. I mean, I, I don't know where masks became politicized. It's unfortunate well you know you have mask shaming going on you've got all yeah (laughs) (laughs) virtue signaling because of mass it's unbelievable kathleen we just genuinely appreciate your spending time with us today i really thank you for so much for coming on the show thank you have a great day you as well thank you all right coming up we're going to visit with boo mortensen the lighter side of the show we're going to do that and more right here on the bob harden show on the bob harden broadcasting network stay tuned for more of the bob harden show here on the bob harden broadcasting network Blue Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Linda and myself. Blue Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining to choice are the popular Eden Bar, the intimate Courtyard Garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean Dining Room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit BlueProvenceNaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's BlueProvenceNaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. 
Do you have an extra auto you'd like to donate to charity? Maximize your tax deduction, support your favorite charity, and help a local child in need by calling Naples Auto Donation Center. Naples Auto Donation Center is a not-for-profit licensed car dealer. Just call NADC at 692-9840 and they'll take it from there. You get a properly documented tax deduction for whatever the vehicle actually sells for. Your designated beneficiary charity gets half the profit after fix-up costs and the net revenue generated by NADC goes to Friends of Foster Children to provide tutoring and other enrichment activities for foster children the government doesn't provide. And NADC is also one of the few places in Collier County that sells inexpensive cars that actually run to folks who would otherwise not be able to afford one. It's a real win-win. Call Naples Auto Donation Center at 692-9840 or visit the website nadckids.com. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability. I proudly serve on their board, and they create policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. And that's just one of the initiatives. And you can find out more by visiting the website, thefga.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Seton Motley, the founder and president of Less Government. Right now, it's time to find out what's new with Boo. Boo Mortensen up in Madison, Wisconsin. Boo, how are you doing? Well, I am doing well, but I have to say, as the days roll on, um, it seems like there's just so much, there's just continuing to be uh, confusion with the figures, you know, and then they say, well, it's because people are testing more. Mm-hmm. You know, don't you feel like you really don't know what the heck is going on well i'm trying you know i'm really working hard to get a lot of good information and and what i've concluded is that uh this virus some some states have uh you know draconian types of uh rules and regulations you can't buy seeds you can't swim in a swimming pool all kinds of stuff but i think the virus is pretty much first of all mutating and probably becoming less strong i'm hearing that from a lot of uh sources and the second thing is it's pretty much going to affect probably 70% of the population about 70% of the people are going to get it most of them will be asymptomatic and won't even know they have it and then uh, there's going to be a small percentage i'm going to say about 1 in 400 folks that get it will die from it, and then those people will be, be primarily those in nursing homes, in compromised immune systems that probably have, by the way, <laughs> death because of or with coronavirus is now, you know, that's what that's what the uh, officials, health officials are putting on the death certificates. I'm not sure they're all coronavirus anyhow. Those are just some thoughts. No, yeah, I agree. Uh, we had two friends that just died recently, and they have had cancer. They've got a terminal cancer. Yeah. But then when they were in a rehab center, they developed the coronavirus. So on the birth certificate, it was death from coronavirus. Right. Not from the underlying cancer, which was probably the real reason. Right. So, uh, and uh, as I just covered on the show earlier, the states that have been the most open and have taken the fewest draconian actions actually have... Number one, uh, uh, better results uh, from from the coronavirus, and second of all, uh, have better results in terms of employment and in the health of their economy. So, um, you know what? People can make good decisions for themselves. We don't need these outside influences from the state or local governments to tell us what to do. Right, I agree. Now, let me just tell you, Madison is situated between two big lakes. Mm-hmm. So here, which is pretty much a lot more shut down than Florida is, uh, some pools are open, some city pools are open, some are not opening all season. Now, why the difference? And if you can swim in a pool, they just I just saw this morning, you're not allowed to swim in the lakes. Really? <laughs> so, I mean, that shows the... Is con- it lurking in the lake? Yeah, it's... I mean, there's a lot of other stuff in a lake, but I don't think the coronavirus has anything to do with it. Well, breaking news, fish have coronavirus. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, you know. It's just the inconsistencies. And if you go to a restaurant in downtown Madison, which very few people are doing, everybody's masked up. Everybody is masked up. If you drive 40 minutes 
outside of Dane County, you will go to a restaurant, there will not be one person, wait staff, bartenders, nobody has got the masks on. Right. So, so what do you figure. What do you make of the well, you know, but the point is, uh, it reminds me of the old saying, uh, during a crisis, elected officials uh, don't just stand there, undo something. <laughs> yeah, but the, yeah. the, the, the knee-jerk reaction is do something, like close pools or to, and I think that's just, uh, I, I don't know, it's, it's certainly not from, from uh, thinking it through, quite frankly. No, I think it's just, uh, it's craziness. It's just, and it's confusing because you kind of, you know, you just don't understand what the logic is behind it. Maybe there is no logic. Um, I was listening to Bob Costas the other day on the radio, and he was talking about sports. Okay, now we're jumping on to another subject. All right. And uh, he said, well, I, he said, you know, we can redo locker rooms. We can do showers. We can redo meeting rooms with like, say, football in the NBA, he said, but you can't take away the fact that it's a contact sport. Right. That doesn't change. And he said, probably because of that, um, you know, how are they going to put football uh, back on the field? He said, I don't know. So you think about it. Don't you think that baseball is perfectly suited to get back on the field and play? Well, let's staying with football again. I just come back to this. Look, uh, the players might get coronavirus, but they have good, healthy immune systems. They're strong. Uh, I just think the whole concern about coronavirus is overblown. With re- now, so one of them or two of them might get very sick and they'll have to be hospitalized. I don't know, but uh, you know what? That happens anyhow, doesn't it? I mean, you get the flu. I mean, you, you get cancer. I mean, things like that happen. So we're in this difficult time. If you're a professional football player, you should be able to opt out. I don't want to play. I don't want to take the risk. Okay, well, just forfeit your salary and uh, go sit on the sidelines. But for those that are willing to take the risk and go out and play, I think they get rewarded. So that would be my thought. Yeah, individual accountability. Yeah, let people make their own decisions. Well, how come that's not happening? Well, uh, the first thought that jumps in my mind when you ask that is there are unions. <laughs> you have the, the baseball. Uh, jumped into my mind. <laughs> these, these people are being represented by people who, quote-unquote, have their best interests at heart. And I'm not certain that always works out that way. But I think that might be one of the issues. And, and uh, you know, I think they're... They're trying to make a good decision as a group. You know, it's also very politicized. Uh, so whatever decisions they make, somebody's going to like it. Somebody's not going to like it. But right now, I think baseball is really in jeopardy because now they're down to a 50-game season, and uh, now they're still fighting about money and so forth. I'm not sure there's going to be a baseball season at all. We'll see. Could be a long hot summer. <laughs> yes, it is. I will say this though: as a result of having no uh, sports to check up on, and I'm an avid sports fan, uh, I've been reading more. I'm getting more informed about a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, reading some great books, so uh, that's kind of happening too. Well, that's good. You see, you're you're um, getting outside of your comfort zone. There you go, Boo. How about you? How are you spending your time? Uh, you know, I'm, we're golfing, you know, down here because of the long winter, you know, when people, when once the weather gets to the point where you can golf, people are crazed to golf. So our golf courses are absolutely jam, jam packed. So, you know, I'm golfing, I'm walking a lot outside, but I'm a big reader all the time and, uh, I don't watch TV too much and I, I'm kind of taking a time out. I'm taking a personal time out from the news from all of that it's just so you know it's just you just get hit with a barrage of just craziness and so i'm just taking a time out however i did read early this morning that seattle has ended the chop zone yeah (laughs) someone got killed in it and they've decided okay enough is enough and the mayor formally said well, we'll have a we'll have a hot summer of love. Yeah, I thought it was going to be a summer of love, but it doesn't look like it's going to work out that way. I don't know what she was smoking. It couldn't <laughs> with those expectations. No. That's unbelievable. Boo, as usual, I never know what we're going to be talking about. It's kind of like having opening a box of chocolates. <laughs> I, I genuinely it's pretty weird, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, no. I, I genuinely appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure.
My pleasure. All right. Have a great week. Coming up, we're going to be visiting with uh, Seton Motley, the founder and president of Less Government. We're going to do that and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For the best in food and drink, as well as great live entertainment, go to the Dog 2 Sports and Music Bar. Formerly known as Weekend Willie's, the Dog 2 Sports and Music Bar has terrific new local owners offering a great new upscale decor and a fabulous new menu. Linda and I are weekly regulars to hear live blues, but you can stop by anytime for great food and drink, to watch your favorite sporting event, or to hear great live entertainment five nights a week. The Dog 2 Sports and Music Bar is located at 5310 Shirley Street, just off Pine Ridge Road, and it's open from 11 a.m. until close every day. Visit the website dogtoothnaples.com or call 431-7004. That's 431-7004. I hope we'll see you there. Did you know St. Matthew's House operates the only emergency homeless shelters in Collier County? St. Matthew's House provided more than 500,000 hot meals to those in need last year, and since 2010, 527 men and women have graduated from the St. Matthew's House Justin's Place Addiction Recovery Program. For over 30 years, St. Matthew's House has provided innovative solutions to fight homelessness, hunger, substance abuse, and poverty in Southwest Florida. And you can help St. Matthew's House in this life-transforming work by patronizing the St. Matthew's House Thrift Stores, Cafe M25, Car Wash and Detailing Center, and award-winning catering operations. For more information, visit stmatthewshouse.org. That's stmatthewshouse.org. St. Matthew's House is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization and does not solicit government funding. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. I really do want to do a shout-out to St. Matthew's House. They do a terrific job, not government-funded. 70% of their revenue comes from the businesses that they run. And I hope you'll support their businesses and uh, as well as make a donation at stmatthewshouse.org, stmatthewshouse.org. A lot of folks uh, are homeless, a lot of folks uh, recovering from addiction there at St. Matthew's House, a lot of folks needing food, and of course they do a great job of doing that with no government support. So uh, support them if you can. Coming up, we're going to visit with Phil Kirpin. He's the president of American Commitment and the Committee to Unleash Prosperity. Right now we have the Seton Motley, the founder and president of Les Government. Seton, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning, sir. Although I think, uh, given the current circumstances, Phil Kirpin should change the name of his uh, uh, organization to America Committed. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, he's, I know you know Phil. So, uh, so you yes. tell us about Less Government. We exist to reduce the size, scope, and sphere of influence of government everywhere it rears its ugly head. Yeah, every, and it's uh, certainly doing a lot of that lately. So uh, you wrote yes. uh, such an interesting column, a little bit different than your usual uh, uh <laughs> circle of influence. I try, to, I try to. I try to mix it up, Bob. Yes, you do. So even more foreign interference in our China China virus fight. Maybe you can tell us about it. Yeah, there, you know, obviously a bunch of companies in a bunch of different countries are racing to find a for this particular brand of flu. I think it's a titanic waste of time. I think the only way to solve this is, uh, you know, maximum density and and. Uh, 70% of the population getting it, and then it goes away, yeah. um, which we're, by the way, achieving in certain areas. Yeah. Uh, the vaccine is ridiculous. We, we still don't have a vaccine for the cold, and how long has that been? Yeah. But anyway, uh, a bunch of companies are working on it in different countries. Seton, you're kind of... There's an American company... Yeah, you're seeing you're kind of uh, kind of breaking up. If you can move closer to the window or something. Okay. Can you hear me now? Is um, that better? Much better, yes. Thanks. Usually, usually I'm, I'm over-modulating. Um, uh, so, Inovia is an com- American company, and they contracted with a South Korean company to uh, manufacture their initial test uh, vaccines, mm-hmm. you know, the initial run, which is a very small run. You do a very small run first. Mm-hmm. And they t- the contract called for, okay, look, 
if the initial run works, we'll go to bigger testing, which requires more vaccine, and quite likely the company they contracted with, which is KXGL, I think it's four letters, which stands for something in Korean, in Korean I'm sure. But the contract said, look, you guys got to basically got to admit you aren't big enough to handle stage, stage two of the process, let alone, you know, hopefully stage three, which is, okay, it's passed all the tests. We're now going to mass manufacture it. You, you can imagine the, the, the scale up that would require. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the Korean company won't do that. They won't acknowledge that they're not big enough to make enough vaccines for the stage two testing. Now, well, the reason this is important is because, one, they signed a contract, and two, they've got all the manufacturing information, which, which Inovia has paid for. They've got the intellectual property of the vaccine itself, hmm. which Inovia has paid for, obviously, and they have to release it. That's part of the deal, is they have to release all of that to Inovia. It's their property, and KGXL and KXGL isn't doing that. Hmm. They're, in, they're holding on to it, slowing up, an obvious process, process, and obviously progress towards a possible vaccine for COVID, and so of course we go to court. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, but it, and uh, KGXL and or whatever the hell the initials are, and uh, and uh, Inovia are in court trying. You know, it, it, it's 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 it, in a way it's another intellectual property fight. You know, yeah. it's 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 Inovia's vaccine uh, formula. It's their property. They also paid for. The manufacturing process to be developed, the KGXL developed, and they that, that they're required to release to the owners in the event of a breakup, and it's 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 almost like a relationship where the the guy, the guy says I, I want to break up with you, and the girl says I don't acknowledge that, <laughs> I don't. Yeah, so so we, so you have a two. Compa- I don't accept the breakup. You have two companies. One of them's in South Korea, though. Do you, does the South Korean government or control have anything to do with this? Well, that's the thing. Is there, there obviously there are South Korean companies working on a vaccine too, and the reason I, I, I brought up the possible co- cooperation between the South Korean companies and the government is because it's happened before. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in the intellectual property realm, too, I might add. Qualcomm got fined hundreds of millions of dollars by the Chinese government for being a, a patent monopoly. There's a couple reasons the, Chinese, the Korean government did that. One, they want the money. You know, they see American companies as do- giant, you know, ATM machines. And two, uh, there's Samsung, which is a Korean company which competes with Qualcomm. So by hindering and harming and, and debilitating Qualcomm, they're helping their domestic company. Hmm. That's so interesting. Uh, now, fortunately, fortunately, this lawsuit, because of the way the, way the contract is written, the lawsuit took place in the United States, not Korea, which is a which is a benefit in and of itself. So, I, I think you just said you got muffled there for a second. You said that the, the the case is being tried in the United States and not in South Korea. It's a, it's a U.S. lawsuit. It is not a Korean lawsuit. That is correct. Okay, now, so, but the wheels of justice grind so slowly, we're on a f- uh, real rapid pace here trying to develop this vaccine. Doesn't this kind of... That's exactly right. This kind of knocks them out of... This is to gum up the works. Yeah. This is at least as much to gum up the works... Because, you know, um, vaccine companies all over the world dropped everything they were doing and started working on a COVID vaccine. So, of course, to impede Inovia in this fashion, when everybody's going at Mach 2 on a, on a COVID uh, vaccine, obviously severely hinders and hampers Inovia. Such, such an interesting story. Again, uh, Seton Motley, the president, founder, and president of Less Government. You can find this story actually on Red State. So I encourage you to uh, to visit uh, redstate.com and look for Seton's column. You can also uh, visit lessgovernment.org. Is the, is the uh, column posted now, Seton? It is on lessgovernment.org as well, yes, sir. Okay, lessgovernment.org is the website. Very interesting story. Lessgovernment.org. You can also visit Less Government on Facebook. Seton, always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Bob. My pleasure indeed. By the way, Seton's down here right now, and I think he's going to make this his permanent home down here on the Paradise Coast. All right, coming up, we're going to visit with Phil Kirpin. Phil is the president of American Committee. He's also on the committee, president of the committee to unleash prosperity. Uh, he testified uh, in Congress in his testimony about COVID-19 and what's happening 
with uh, that. It's going to be just a very interesting supplement to our conversation today. So we're going to do that and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Do you or a family member suffer from chronic pain in your knees, hips, or shoulders? Joint pain can be a nagging and serious problem requiring expert and compassionate care. I know I'm Bob Harden, the host of The Bob Harden Show. Until 2006, I was suffering debilitating pain and deformity in my knees. I couldn't enjoy biking or golf or even sleep without chronic pain as a constant companion. Thanks to Dr. George Markovich and the professional staff at the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine, my pain is gone, and I'm back to doing the activities I enjoy with no pain. I have a lifestyle I can only imagine. Imagine prior to knee surgery, and you can too. Call the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. They will thoroughly evaluate your condition, provide personalized, state-of-the-art treatment, and help you relieve your pain and get back to your active lifestyle. At the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine, your care will be professionally managed through every phase of your recovery. For an initial consultation, call the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine, located off Tammy Amy Trail in Bonita Springs, at 482-5399. That's 482-5399. You listen to The Bob Harden Show, so why not market your company to our loyal listeners? Ads are played live on each show and then archived so listeners can hear the show and your ad at their convenience. Each advertising package includes a banner on BobHarden.com with a link to your website at no extra charge. Join Lulubee's Diner, Johnson's Air Conditioning, Blue Provence, and many others who advertise on the show. Call me at 598-3889, that's 598-3889, or send an email to BobHarden at Hotmail.com to design an ad program that's just right for your business and your budget. You'll be pleasantly surprised at the cost and the value. Several advertisers have been with me for years. Find out why by calling 598-3889 or send me an email to bobharden at hotmail.com. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host... Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability, creating policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. And I proudly serve on their board. I hope you find out more by visiting the website, thefga.org. We have with us Phil Kirpin. Phil's been on the show several times. He's the president of American Commitment and also the president of the Committee to Unleash Prosperity. Phil, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Phil. Both organizations are so interesting. Maybe you could tell us about them. Well, American Commitment is a national free market advocacy group, a 501c4. We focus uh, really on all the fiscal, economic, and regulatory issues, and we try to engage on the ones that are on the margin, where Mm -hmm. if we can mobilize citizens and engage them, uh, we can make a difference in those uh, fights. And uh, Committee to Unleash Prosperity is a 501c3 uh, charitable educational foundation founded by Steve Moore, Art Laffer, Steve Forbes, and Larry Kudlow. Larry Kudlow has now, of course, left because he's gone to the White House to be President Trump's uh, top economic advisor, and uh, they've brought me in to help sort of run the day-to-day operations. And it's a similar mission in terms of the issue set, but it's really more focused on sort of making the supply side pro-growth case uh, to the public and, and uh, educating people on the, on sort of the low-tax, free-trade, uh, kind of uh, limited government case for prosperity. Yeah, it's such an interesting lineup of economists, too. I'm just, I'm so impressed with uh, with the work that you're doing, Phil. Uh, AmericaCommitment.org is the website. I don't know if the uh, Committee to Unleash Prosperity has a website, but... Uh, yeah, CommittedToUnleashProsperity.com. Uh, committee to, uh, to UnleashProsperity.com. So, uh, you, uh, this is so fascinating. You had testified to a House Select Committee on Coronavirus, and... Uh, Maybe you could just tell us that it's all about COVID-19. Maybe you can tell us about it. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. Um, I was the one Republican witness. It was a virtual hearing, so it was over the uh, Internet, uh, which is interesting, too, because the Democrats are going to these massive, like, street protests and demonstrations, but they, they <laughs> can't. They still can't hold congressional hearings in person for whatever reason, so yeah. it was a uh, virtual hearing. But... 
Um, I was surprised that the Democrats who run that committee, because this is on the House side, had a hearing on this topic. It was on the uh, crisis in our long-term care facilities, where we've had you know, mass death in a number of places uh, with coronavirus. And I was surprised they had the hearing because it's overwhelmingly Democratic governors who've presided over disaster in this regard. Uh, really, the only Republican governor is Charlie Baker from Massachusetts, who's not much of a Republican. And so I, I was surprised uh, that they had this hearing. I was the one Republican-invited witness. There were four Democratic-invited witnesses. And it became pretty clear early on uh, what the Democratic strategy was, which was, uh, you know, basically blame President Trump. And mm-hmm. essentially what they what they said is, you know, this problem was so bad and so many people died that... Uh, it must have been a federal problem, therefore blame President Trump. And, and kind of the point that I made, uh, which is the truth, is this was really uh, you know, overwhelmingly an issue in seven states. Not to say that there weren't significant uh, deaths in long-term care facilities in every state, because there were. When you're dealing with a virus that's extremely deadly for older people and people with pre-existing conditions, your most vulnerable population is going to be in the long-term care facilities, and so it's unavoidable, unfortunately, that you're going to have some deaths in that uh, population in every state. But, you know, we had a national average of about 2% of the population of long-term care facilities dying uh, with coronavirus so far. And you have these massive, massive disparities. So states that handled it relatively well, like your own state of Florida, lost about 1.1% of its long-term care population. California, interestingly, uh, same as Florida, 1.1%. And then you had states like New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, Illinois, and Michigan. And those seven states, which have about 20% of the U.S. population, have about 60% of all the coronavirus deaths in the country. And the what they have in common from a policy standpoint is uh, they all adopted some version of the policy of saying once p- hospitalized patients were clinically stable, they could be sent into nursing homes even if they were still infectious and even if those nursing homes didn't want them or weren't equipped uh, to protect the rest of their population. And that policy was a disaster. Mm-hmm. Uh, it led to, not only did it lead to, you know, significant spread in the nursing homes that caused a lot of deaths. And you see things like New Jersey lost 10% of its long-term care population, Connecticut 12%, Massachusetts 9%, uh, just you know, sky-high numbers relative to the national average. But it also caused hospital overload because what would happen is you would send an infectious patient into the nursing home, they would infect 20 or 30 other people, mm-hmm. they'd all come back to the hospital. Yeah. And it caused sort of the broader meltdown that we saw in places like New York. And so it was really a disastrous policy. So uh, you've done such a uh, amazing uh, research on this, and it's uh, this. This is so detailed, and we can't cover all the detail that you had. But uh, I've come to believe, and just because of uh, different narratives that I've heard from different folks, that uh, people die with coronavirus, but they could be in the last stages of cancer. They could be in the last stages of uh, renal disease, or whatever it might be. And uh, you know, but what do you find on a death certificate is you find COVID nineteen. Any comment on that? Yeah, this is this is tough. I mean, the um, even the original British modeler Neil Ferguson, whose model said two million U.S. deaths and a half million in the U.K. and sort of the panic model that that spurred the lockdowns, uh, his testimony even at the time when he was talking about millions of deaths, he said, and about two thirds of those people are people who would die uh, in the same calendar year anyway. So we are largely talking about you know, sort of the sickest, most vulnerable people, which means inherently uh, maybe we're, we're talking about lives shortened by a matter of months from what they otherwise might be. And that's not all of the deaths. Some of them have shortened, I'm sure, by years or even decades. Uh, but a significant portion, if we go by Neil Ferguson, two-thirds are losing a relatively short uh, amount of remaining life. Uh, and to your point, we have the CDC definition, which uh, results in counting deaths that may not have been affected in any way by coronavirus, because essentially CDC has said any cause of death in the presence of a positive coronavirus test should be recorded as a COVID-19 death. And you know that might have made sense early in the epidemic. Mm-hmm. When you're in the first few weeks, it's simpler uh, from an accounting standpoint. And when you're on a short time horizon, most likely if people are testing positive, it was a con- at least a contributing factor. But as we get months into this, you have a lot of people who had mild or even asymptomatic cases. And uh, if it went through a nursing home and everyone there got it, uh, and, you know, say 10% of them died from it, uh, but all the rest of them, they had mild or uh, asymptomatic cases. Well, the median nursing home stay prior to death in this country is about five months. 
And so as we sort of move forward into time, and this becomes less of a short time horizon thing, and, and uh, we're, we're you know, into month four, uh, if we don't tighten that definition, we're going to get a rising number of people who died from something totally unrelated um, but just happened to test positive. And based on the current definition that we're using, they all go into the count, which I think will uh, significantly distort public perception of risk because we're going to see rising numbers that are not necessarily uh, causally linked to the virus. And so I would really like to see either the CDC fix its, de- fix its definition mm-hmm. to require that it actually be uh, a cause of death or a contributing cause of death or failing that because the CDC has been sort of a rogue agency through all of this. Uh, I would like to see states take up and step up and take responsibility and do dual reporting where they report both the CDC definition number and a more accurate number and put them side by side so people can see what the difference is between the two. All right. Well, well said, Phil. And I, uh, my personal belief is this kind of feeds into a political narrative as well. I mean, I think that the whole notion of blame Trump <laughs> is, is an important background noise in everything that's going on with regard to this. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the stunning things about this hearing is just they had their witnesses all, uh, you know, prepped to say it's, it's federal, it's federal responsibility to blame the federal government, blame President Trump. Uh, but the federal government actually put out pretty good guidance on all of this, uh, that the states that have had really bad outcomes disregard it. And yeah. so, you know, unless you have him, you know, literally sending in the troops to take over the disease response, I'm not sure there was all that much more he could have done. Yeah. Uh, you know, I would have liked to see from a messaging standpoint more of a federal focus on the long-term care facilities as the most at-risk population. So you can fault the uh, administration for that, for not being more clear about sort of differentiating the risks. But other than that, I don't really think the policy errors were principally federal because, as I said, they were concentrated really in seven states. How do you blame the federal government for seven states messing something up that most states did not? Yeah, exactly. Well, another important part of this narrative is your statistics about who's... uh, catches coronavirus or ends up being hospitalized, the, net, the disparity in the numbers of, based on age is so severe, there's some states that are considering not opening schools or keeping schools virtual right now. Uh, based on everything you see, what are your thoughts? Oh, I think that's outrageous. I think children have been really, really badly treated through all of this. Uh, they are at almost zero risk themselves. You're never at zero. There are a handful of uh, hospitalizations and deaths among children, but far, far lower than seasonal flu, which is a risk we accept every single year. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, the, the age distribution, the stratification for hospitalizations and deaths with coronavirus is not the classic U-shape that we see with the flu. It's a J-shape. Uh, you have essentially near zero cases at young ages, and then it rises very sharply, uh, where almost all of the morbidity and mortality is among people who are quite old. Uh, over 80% of deaths are above age 65. Over 60% of deaths are above age 75. And uh, while we have some hospitalizations among younger adults than that, we have very few among children. Uh, We've had a cumulative 3.5 hospitalizations per 100,000 school-aged children with coronavirus. That's 3.5 cumulative total uh, to date uh, compared to 24.8 this season for lab-confirmed influenza. And so I think uh, schools should absolutely be back. Uh, There was some concern that children would be super spreaders and uh, would result in more community transmission of the virus. That also uh, looks like it's not being borne out um, by the data. Children tend to be infected by their parents, not the other way around. In the household studies that we've seen, and uh, we now have studies from 22 countries that have gone back to school with no significant increase in community spread. And so this is something uh, that I think you do need to manage the adult interactions around schools, so the teacher interactions with other teachers in the faculty lounge, that kind of thing. You probably want distancing and masks. You have to manage the uh, arrivals and dismissals where you have large numbers of parents coming. But in terms of the children, uh, you probably don't need any extraordinary measures, certainly up to age 10 or 12 or so. We have research out of Europe now that they don't even have the ACE2 receptors developed, which the virus uh, sort of attaches itself to, and so there's very little risk of, uh, of uh, severe illness or, or transmissibility from children that age. It, it sort of increases with age. High school, uh, it seems to be a little bit more like adults in terms of their ability to transmit. But, of course, high school students are also much more capable of, of sort of being careful of not getting in each other's uh, space and right. uh, that kind of thing. And so I think 
Uh, there's some challenges with schools, but they're uh, definitely surmountable, and uh, it should be unthinkable that we wouldn't open yeah. all the schools. Phil, this is such great information, and uh, is there a place where you could find this testimony? I, mean, I guess you could probably uh, Google uh, Phil Kirpin. Yeah, it's on the, uh, you should be able to find the full written testimony on CommitteeToUnleashProsperity.com. You might have to scroll back a bit now, mm -hmm. uh, but you should be able to find it on there. And I also, uh, just yesterday, actually, I... I I uh, posted about an 800-word summary of uh, you know, the nursing home issues and so forth, which uh, it should be a little bit easier to read and share uh, than the 12-page testimony version. All right. Phil Kirpin, again, AmericanCommitment.org is the website, and uh, the Committee to UnleashProsperity.com, two great websites. Phil, genuinely appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Have a good one. You as well. Thank you, Phil. Well, that's a wrap here on today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, uh, tell your friends. If you have a comment, send me an email at bobharden at hotmail.com. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or uh, wherever you are. Namaste. <laughs>